Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Today's interview was recorded in a historic home in Old Hickory, Tennessee, outside of Nashville, during a recent visit. The quality of conversations when we visit face-to-face and look each other in the eye, I think, are discernibly different than if we talk on the telephone or if we talk on a satellite or on Zoom or on some other, you know, webcam, something like that. So uh, that costs money, and if you'd like to help us out with that, we'd be happy to take your money. Uh, The quickest way and the simplest way is by becoming a member at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com, and just look for Man Listening. That's one word, Man Listening. Thank you so very much. It's all about finding a balance between places in your life where you need like, I don't want to say comfort, but where you need security and places where it's important to push the envelope for yourself or for other people. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi there, I am Stuart Watson and this is Man Listening. Today's conversation is with a brilliant young woman named Sasha Gumbar. And Sasha went to school with my kids at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she was part of an acapella group with my daughter, and she was also in something highfalutin called the Dialectic and Philanthropic Society, which is known as DiFi, um, which is not just a drinking club. It's not a fraternity, and it's not a drinking club. They actually get together and uh, discuss things of great import, and you'll hear us refer to my kids and to DiFi. But what we end up talking to her about is what it means to be American, how valuable that is, how her father, as not just an immigrant and a first-generation immigrant, but also as a person who escaped communism, as a refugee from a really oppressive communist rule in Eastern Europe and how much that means to her as now a lawyer. So, without further ado, Sasha Gumbar. Where were you born? I was born in Allentown, Pennsylvania. A hospital or home? Hospital. For your mother, your number what of how many? I'm an only child. I have a half-sister on my father's side. Was your father in the military? No. Um, my father is from Slovakia originally uh, and came to the United States as an adult and so when I was little we sort of moved back and forth between Europe and the U.S. And so where in Europe did you all live? A couple different places but mostly in Prague in the Czech Republic. What brought him to the U.S.? So when my father was living in Slovakia it was still communist and There were not a lot of civil liberties for the people living there. Um, You know, the situation in Slovakia was better than the situation in like Russia or the Ukraine or something in terms of in terms of the level of governmental repression. But there was still very little free speech. Um, My dad is Catholic um, and it was very difficult for Catholics to kind of get ahead in society because to get ahead, you had to join the Communist Party. And of course, they're very atheistic and so he decided to come when he was I guess in his early 20s. Both of my parents are are practicing and I was raised pretty religious as well. I don't practice anymore. I would say it started to happen when I was like 16 or 17 though I didn't really uh, I would say come to terms with it until I was much older maybe 24, 25. Um, When I was in high school, uh, my grandmother got very sick and, you know, religion was a big part of my upbringing and everybody was 
always praying the rosary and you know she went to church and people would be dedicating masses to her and and all of those sorts of things and I just and, and you know she was she was very old and the her illness progressed and, and she passed away and I just remember thinking that it seemed like a little bit of a cruel kind of system you know that you're everybody I knew was sort of like begging for a miracle and some people get miracles and other people don't get miracles um, and so that was maybe the first crack in my view of religion um, but I still I guess consider myself to be a spiritual person I'm not an atheist I don't like going because it's a very conflicting sort of feeling. I feel a lot of warmth towards the Catholic Church. I have so many memories growing up. You know, my mother was a Sunday school teacher. We went to church when I was little in Prague, and it was this, you know, big, beautiful Baroque cathedral with all the oil paintings and, like, the gold-plated sculptures. And, and I have memories of really being in awe of that. And, and so in some ways, I find it very comforting to go back to church. I also find the ritual very comforting. It's very meditative. We chant a lot in the Catholic Church. There's a lot of standing up and sitting down and the whole thing. And I find that very soothing. Um, but I find that I'm not really able to quiet my mind at all. And maybe it's gotten worse since I've gone to law school. But, you know, they'll give the homily and they'll say something. And I'll be like, well, that just doesn't sound right. Hold on. Like, <laughs> if you want to raise your hand and be like, well, hold on one second. I have a question. <laughs> Can you follow up on that? So, I don't Let's know. Just pause right, exactly. <laughs> Living in the South. Most of my friends growing up, my friends growing up also were often very religious, so they were usually Baptist or Lutheran or something, and there's this sort of image that the Catholic Church is full of a lot of, a lot of fluff, right? That it's, you have the saints and the, and the icons and the statues and the incense and that that's all extra, but actually, I think a lot of people really need that for religion. I think a lot of people really need the ritual, um, they need very concrete things to sort of ground them if they're going to get into the headspace to be spiritual. And the thing is that other faiths do that too, right? Like you go to a Buddhist temple, there's incense and they, you know, they chant and they ring bells or gongs. When you went to Slovakia mm -hmm. as, as a little girl, going back and forth, were you ever like, no, I don't want to go, or uh, <laughs> I want to go back here, or were you just like, okay, whatever, this is a big adventure? So, I loved living in Prague. It was a ridiculously idyllic childhood. Um, so, in some ways, my childhood was very non-traditional because I was at this international school, and so there was a lot of transients, you know, teachers always coming and going, my friends always coming and going. Um, but in other ways, I had a very traditional childhood. You know, the Czech Republic is extremely safe, so I was always riding bikes with the neighborhood kids, going on adventures, you know, going, the Czechs are very outdoorsy. We'd go on the weekends, we'd go into the forest, we'd pick berries, we'd pick mushrooms. Um, you know, the city itself is, is also incredibly beautiful and, and very cultured. We would have class field trips to castles and we would see the see the ballet at Christmas and it, it was a very like pristine childhood but I think because I was in this international school where you know everybody was coming and going all the time I never felt totally settled there uh, there was always this question of when we when were we gonna go back to the United States um, and this feeling that it could happen at a minute's notice, you know, my dad's job was very stressful. It was, he was working for um, a large telecommunications company that had been owned by the state under communism and was being privatized. And it was very difficult, very long hours. People were constantly getting fired with no notice. And, and so I always felt like I sort of had a one foot in the door. You know, we were there for so many years, but it was always, we're Americans and we're gonna go back. And I loved going back to the United States. I would go back in the summers. 
I would stay with my grandma, Millie, in Pennsylvania. And that was very special too because uh, Pennsylvania was a place I only went on holiday. So it was like a permanent holiday there, you know. When I think about it, I think about, you know, sitting on her back porch and catching fireflies and think about how excited I would be to go to 4th of July picnics. And I also think a lot about the food um, because um, processed food had not really made it to the Czech Republic yet. And so I would get so excited to come to the United States and have things like Cheetos and American cheese and I don't know, like all of these things that are so bad for you. But I always felt, I think, a little unsettled and a little restless in the Czech Republic and was always waiting to go back on some level. How long was your father here before he became a citizen? You know, I actually don't know. It's not a thing that he talks about very often. Does he talk about what it was like in the old country very often? Yes, and more as he gets older. You know, he's talked about, too, feeling like he's much too American to move back to Slovakia, but much too Slovak in the United States. Um, he's sort of spent too long in either place now, I think, to be fully adjusted, you know, in either one. But yes, he talks about Slovakia a lot. He talks about personal things, you know, he talks about um, my grandparents and and their house and the town where they grew up. They grew, uh, he grew up in Preshov, which is in the mountains. And Have he, you seen it? Oh yes, I've been several times. It's it's very beautiful. It's a small city, um, but like you said, it's it's in the Tatras mountains, which are very lovely. Um, and we stayed with my grandmother a few times when I was little. Um, and he talks about the reasons that he left as well. He has all sorts of stories about being like a young person with big plans and big ideas and feeling like he wasn't going to be able to achieve them because he didn't think the right things or believe the right things and he also has lots of stories about going out and getting drunk and making jokes that he wasn't supposed to be making about the communist party and getting in trouble about it later he also used to tell me this story which was not a joke but is something that i, I think about when he was in elementary school you know they're they're in school and i like like everywhere you know i think we talk a lot about soviet propaganda but like all countries teach their children civics there's certainly american propaganda right they teach them stories about communist history and they would teach them um uh, you know soviet values uh, my father was for a while and like the communist boy scouts <laughs> they used to wear little um Little, they were supposed to be like little baby Vladimir Lenins, and they would wear pins with a picture of of baby Vladimir Lenin, and he was looking like very sweet and kind of cherubic, like the baby Jesus or something. But um, you know, so they were in school and they would do all these activities, and and the teacher was talking to them about um, the borders around the country and the walls, was maybe showing them pictures or something, and. So you see we have to have these huge fences um, with barbed wire because, you know, our country is so, so beautiful and it's so wonderful that we have to have these fences or everybody would be trying to get in. And one little kid said, well, if we're trying to stop people from getting in, how come the barbed wire is curving this way? <laughs> and his parents were called and it was a whole thing. You know, my dad can be very difficult. He has a lot of opinions about everything and he, he doesn't keep any of them to himself ever. To me, about my life or when he's with strangers, but I think that it must have been very affecting for him uh, to learn from such a young age that you were not allowed to say what you thought about anything and that now he must really enjoy saying what he thinks all the time. Sasha walks into a bar and somebody says, this country is so bad, we might as well be communists. You know, they have more liberty than we have here. Do you speak up or do you? I always speak up. I, I am like my father in that I'm very bad at knowing when it's not necessary to speak. So if somebody said that, um, you know, this is the, the Democrats are just a bunch of communists. We might as well be living in Russia. Oh my goodness, it feels like Thanksgiving now. <laughs> um. Is that your family? Or is that... A little bit. It's a slight, that's a slight caricature for sure. I find that the most persuasive thing to do is 
to be very quiet and very rational and to stick to the facts. And people tend to be persuaded that way. Uh, you know, not always, of course. I, I think we've seen a lot over the past couple of years how good people are at making up alternative facts when they don't, when they don't like the ones that they're given. But I think what that does, at least, is it puts you on like a footing of respect with the people you're talking about, or with the people you're talking to, right? Like, people appreciate when they don't feel like you uh, have come to your opinion because of the type of person that they are or because of preconceived notions about them. You know, they appreciate when they feel like you respect them enough to be thorough, careful in forming your opinions. For instance, well, my father grew up under communism. And yes. he came here and he's much happier. Yes, uh, that is true. I, that is true, and that's something that's I've I found a lot um, in discussing immigration with people. Obviously, immigration has been a hot button issue, and I think you find so. I mean, I'm second generation, but there's no way for people to know that really because I'm I'm white and I speak English and I don't have any sort of accent and people uh, often feel like they can say whatever horrendous things that they want about immigrants and refugees to me um, because they don't think I am one, so I must agree. <laughs> and um, I find that the quickest way to shut down that conversation uh, is to say, you know, well, my father was actually a refugee and you know, so I th we're aware firsthand how difficult it is to get into this country legally, and I'm aware firsthand of the kind of desperation that causes people to come here, and so I guess I just view the issue a lot more personally. And that usually stops the conversation very quickly. <laughs> I it don't stops it all together? Usually. Or does it, it does. Uh, I mean, is that like end of debate? Let's talk about something else? I or? think people get embarrassed because they're used to having these debates as if they're totally theoretical, you know. When they talk about the people that are, um, whatever, swarming our borders, they're not actually talking about that with any of the people who crossed over. And so for them, it's a very abstract, as passionate as people can get about it, it's a very abstract debate. And I think that people uh, have a lot less conviction when they have to, um, like confront the consequences of their beliefs with the people that those beliefs affect. And there are other people who say, if the heart is not moved, the brain will never move. Interesting, that's, I've never really thought about it like that, but I think, I think that's an interesting perspective. I mean, definitely in, I think the type of people that are attracted to the law are often very logic and rationality driven. And it, it makes sense, um, absolutely. And in some ways that is very necessary. You know, you want your judges to be dispassionate. You want your prosecutors to be dispassionate. You know, when you have people um, in society that have, the, that have power over the law, they have enormous power over other human beings and you want them to be able to wield that in a way that's like consistent and fair. But I often, struggled in law school because I found the style of thinking to be very cold. I found there to be, even among jurists that are, that are liberal, among jurists like of all, of all different perspectives, I found there to be like a real detachment from human consequences. I feel like the law has become this sort of big thing, like, oh, it's it's the law, it's the rule of law, as if it's just like come down from on high, like it was just like dropped, like the Ten Commandments were dropped from Moses, but like the fact is that the law is entirely invented. We, <laughs> we made it up and we can, we can make it up in a different way if we decide that it doesn't reflect our values. And it, it, it is upsetting to me how many lawyers I think are sort of blind to that reality. I think it's about empathy. I spent the past semester as an intern in the Nashville Public Defender's Office, and the previous semester I was working uh, at Vanderbilt at their criminal defense clinic. 
I also, you know, I, I had a really excellent criminal law professor and she had us uh, all tour a prison as part of our criminal law class. And I was really, I shouldn't have been surprised by this, but I, I was still surprised when I realized how few people ever really confront the consequences of our criminal justice system being the way that it is. Meaning? Nobody knows what the inside of a prison looks like. And so we don't have to think about them for the time that they're there. We don't have to think about them until they come back out. Um, and when they come back out, I think we just think about them as a problem. And I remember touring the prison here in Davidson County and- Jailer prison. Prison, mm -hmm. though I've, I've been to both, but um, this was the prison. And, you know, nothing horribly traumatic happened. I didn't see any, you know, rioting or anything, but we were walking around the prison yard. We were going from one building to another, and there was a woman, um, one of the women who had been incarcerated was also walking on the path, and she strayed off the path onto the grass, and there was a guard all the way across the way, and he had a megaphone, and he started yelling at her, where are you going? Where, you know, is this, is this on your schedule? Get back on the path. And I remember just thinking, oh my God, like something so basic, like being able to sit outside and enjoy the sun or enjoy enjoy the smell of the grass or the, the way that the grass feels on your feet or you know even even these like most simple things are totally taken away from people when they're incarcerated and it was just such a shocking image and I, th I think about it frequently and I'm a lawyer right like this is what I this is what I study um, and even before going to law school I was a very politically engaged person and it still was so new to me and felt so different to see it in person and and most people never get to see that kind of thing in person i think that that's a huge part of why we have the legal system that we do is because ordinary people are shielded from the consequences of the system when we were working with the clinic at vanderbilt i had to come back to my clients and i had to tell them you know what the plea deal was on the table and and i had to tell them with my classmates, usually with, with another person, though sometimes alone. Um, this is the deal on the table and we don't think you're going to be successful at trial. And I had to look at somebody and tell them that they were never going to have their freedom again. And these were people that I knew, right? Like these were people that I had grown to know. And I you know, remember my one client and he was a really talented guitar player. And uh, I, I like to play guitar as well. And I was thinking about, you know, how I like to sit outside on the front porch and play my guitar and sing and, and sit in the sun. And I remember looking at him and thinking, oh my gosh, you're never gonna do that ever again. So it was life without parole? No, but he was very elderly. Oh, yes, I he's see. very elderly. Yes. Because just the facts are that uh, he will probably die. Oh, people don't live very long in prison. Um, yes, I mean, it was quite a long sentence, but mostly he was, he was just older. And I sometimes would go back and I would think about um, his file when I first got it, and I would think about what he was charged with. And, you know, we had a little, a little table. It would be like, oh, if you're charged with a class... B felony and and you know you have these exacerbating factors in your record well let's look here these are the this is the yeah, years that you'll be right you're cross-referencing yes exactly that's what structured sentencing looks like and it seemed perfectly rational in the rows and columns but it's very different when you have to tell somebody that that's going to be their life and I don't know what the solution is really. I mean, you asked me, you asked me uh, how to fix it and instead of just talked about things that make me sad for 10 minutes, but. Well, maybe, maybe I should back up and ask, what attracted you to the law? Mm. Uh, it was a fairly practical decision. I, well, yes and no. I wanted to get into public policy and I thought that the, getting a law degree was the best way to do that. So, um, kind of public policy, that's a huge area. Mm -hmm. I uh, studied international relations and I wanted to do something in that field. Um, I, I don't I, even know what that means. <laughs> like, um, like, just, I was interested in foreign aid, I was interested in human rights issues, I wanted to work, like, at the State Department, basically. 
Um, what is an issue that really speaks to your heart? Well, when I was in college, I studied genocide prevention. That was what I, I wrote my thesis on that. I spent some time doing research in Rwanda on the genocide there. Um, you went there? I did. It was a really incredible experience. It's a beautiful country. It's a strange place, I mean, as you can imagine, <laughs> but very pretty. So it was really cool, and it, it actually, I think, informed my views about the American criminal justice system, you know, even though public defense is so different, um, because it was really interesting. I, what, I mean, what is genocide other than a mass crime, like incredibly large-scale crime? And it was, it was it, it, I mean, it's mass murder. And so it's interesting to think about the way we deal with sort of like individualized crime in the United States versus the way that this very small, very poor, very vulnerable country uh, recovered from like the ultimate crime. So we spent some time, we, we visited um, the tribunal run by the United Nations, which is like a very uh, formal, westernized criminal uh, court. And then we also spent some time um, in Rwanda learning about some of the kind of alternative judicial mechanisms that they have. Um, and we did speak to both victims and perpetrators that had um, brought their, you know, quote, cases through the system. The Czech Republic and Slovakia split, and it was phenomenally peaceful. Like, it's a total historical anomaly. I have no idea how it happened, and I don't know why more people don't study it, um, because they, the Czechs and the Slovaks are very different ethnically, and they have different languages and different religions, um, and uh, the Slovaks have always been subordinated to the Czechs legally and politically, um, and they just sort of had like a, it was like a very amicable breakup. You know? They were like, oh, well, this just isn't working for us anymore. And they went their separate ways. And my dad, I think, is really proud of, of that. And when I was studying ethnic conflict, he would send me books and articles about Slovakia um, because he would tell me like, like at one point I was doing research on Kurdistan and, you know, there's been a genocide among the Kurds as well. And the Kurds are seeking their own country. And he would say like, the Kurds should listen to Slovakia. They should see how we did it. Um, so that was a matter of great pride. So your father was in the Slovak portion? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and like sort of deep Slovakia. He wasn't in the capital. He was in um, a smaller city in the east on the Polish border. As far as Yugoslavia, he actually went. He worked for USAID um in the aftermath of the genocide and and he and my mother and i went when i was a very little girl and lived in sarajevo i don't know what he thought about in terms of there being a genocide in europe if that was something that was extraordinary to him or not but i do think my dad is somebody that like maybe because of his own experiences uh, feels like a phenomenal amount of moral responsibility and he refers to people <laughs> refers to people uh, from that part of the world as his Slavic brothers, and he does it completely unironically, which uh, is lovely, and I think he felt a phenomenal amount of responsibility that this was a part of the world um, where there were other people from his uh, cultural background experiencing a lot of pain. It was a part of the world he was familiar with. He used to go to the, he escaped through Yugoslavia, actually. Um, you know, he used to have family vacations on the beach in Croatia. And so I think he felt a responsibility for that. I, don't, I, I wonder, actually, that's an interesting question about whether he um, like would have felt the same responsibility for people from a totally different cultural background. Well, what can one old white man do to, in a small way, facilitate a culture where it doesn't get to that? Oh, that's such a difficult question. I love that you've asked me this question because sort of in the back of my mind um, when I, is that when I'm totally sick of being a lawyer and I'm just really tired of <laughs> wearing suits and yelling at strangers in court, I would like to research this kind of issue in sincerity, like look at how places like South Africa after apartheid or you know Lebanon after their ethnic conflict, which is maybe still an ethnic conflict, or Rwanda after the genocide. Um, move forward and what the United States can learn from that. I, I think it's a really fascinating question. It's kind of amazing to me that, that people don't draw those comparisons more. Like you, you like after last summer with the, um, you know, the 
protests around the movement for black lives. You had, I, would, I listened to all these podcasts and there were so many journalists and pundits asking how we move forward from this horrible racial conflict as if, as if nobody has ever tried to do it before. <laughs> and we have to start absolutely, we have to reinvent the wheel because we're America. We don't and, know what to right, do. Exactly. And I mean, we don't really know what to do, but certain other places have tried it through trial and error. Um, the, there are a few things that I would say. So first of all, I think, and this goes back maybe a little bit to what you were talking about earlier about people sharing their personal experiences. I think that any change has to have a component that happens on the personal, individual, community level. What's unbelievable about Rwanda, so first of all, the, the, the genocide was very uh, personal. Unlike you know the Holocaust or something like that, a lot of the violence was not carried out by the state. It was carried out by individuals. It, it's kind of incredible. Like these communities basically just rose up, and 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 people with no military background started killing each other. It, it's horrible. The people still live in those same communities, right? And so a key portion of the reconciliation in Rwanda has been at the community level and having these uh, community-based, they're called the, they're courts, they're called the gachacha courts, but they're, they're not courts in the way that we would traditionally think of them. There's, there's, there are no rules of evidence, there are no rules of procedure, but it's people uh, coming before their community and explaining what they have done and finding ways to make amends for that. Those courts have gotten a lot of criticism because of course they're not very, um, there's no uniformity to them, to the way that so-called sentences are handed down or anything. Um, there are very few rules in the way that they work, but what they achieve that a more traditional justice system can't achieve is uh, forgiveness between individual people. And so I think that we need to start thinking about how to make change at the community level in the United States, whether that's through programs like, you know, there are, there are organizations and stuff that have these kind of community therapy sessions uh, among people who commit crimes and the victims of those crimes, or whether it's just through being a fucking human being. <laughs> and Have you studied restorative justice? A little bit, a little bit. And you know, again, it, it's it's spoken about as if it's this radical thing, but it's it's literally the entire reason that Rwanda isn't still in a civil war after having a genocide 25 years ago. Um, but you know, I, I think it, it doesn't even have to be part of a restorative justice program. It can just be like what you were talking about is having very honest and frank conversations with people and being able to admit when when you're wrong, which I think is very important. If in Rwanda, right they can figure out a way to resolve when not just one, but millions are killed. Right. Then when somebody breaks in your house and steals your TV, or when someone boosts your car, right. we put people in a box, mm -hmm. which makes no sense whatsoever. Right. No. Exactly. That's makes that's no sense. That's exactly because it. it. Yeah, and I, I don't want to paint like a rosy picture. There was like a there are prisons in Rwanda and and people that murdered as part of the genocide did have jail sentences, but it was very different from I mean they were not life sentences. These were kind of community-based jails. They usually lived in a village and did like a practical work for the community. It was just a very different model and it's a model that's like I think more forward-looking and thinking more about building things than getting even for things that have happened in the past. And you would hear people in Rwanda say, well, you know, I lost my entire family and there is nothing that will bring, there is nothing that will bring them back. So we have no choice but to move forward. It's like they reached such a point of desperation that it forced them to, to focus on the future in a way that I think is, is really powerful and inspiring and in a way that I hope is replicable in other places. Samantha Power, read any of her? Oh, I am obsessed with Samantha Power. <laughs> She's my icon. Yeah. yeah. It begins with the notion that all is not lost. 
So when I I had an internship once at a at like a civil rights organization, and they invited Vanita Gupta to speak, who is I, I like really don't want to butcher her uh, credentials because Vanita Gupta, if you're listening, I think you're a very inspiring person, and I admire you very much. But I believe that what she was was she was um, the head of the civil rights division in the Department of Justice under Barack Obama, and now heads up. Um, the Civil Rights Coalition, which is a nonprofit entity, and so she's just like a very, she's a big deal. She said during this speech, and this was, I mean, gosh, right in the midst of the summer of 2020, um, that, you know, she understands why people feel cynical and she understands why people feel tired and she understands why people almost feel like guilty being optimistic. Like, oh my gosh, who are you, who are you to, um, laud the achievements of, of Martin Luther King when we still have so far to go. But then she said, you know what? Cynicism is a luxury of the oppressor. And I really <laughs> loved that. I like the idea that cynicism, I mean, it's not productive and it's, it's a, it can be such a cop out. It can be a, one of my law professors used the term, it's a manifesto for disinvestment. Cynicism is a manifesto for disinvestment. I like the idea that hope can be radical and optimism can be radical. And that it's not the same as looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. It's not the same as... It's um, hard work. Yes, it is. Hope is fucking Constructive hard hope is hard it work. It is so hard. It is. Optimism with a purpose is hard. And cynicism is kind of a lazy way out. It's a way of saying, mic drop, I'm out. Uh-huh. Yeah, I agree. My son credited you with, and a couple of others, women, with changing the culture <laughs> at Die Five. Oh my. Uh, that debating society, which used to have this sort of larger social purpose, wasn't just a drinking club, wasn't just a get, let's get together, was predominantly male. Mm hmm. And probably still is. Mm hmm. And I'm wondering if there's something about women, something inherent to women mm -hmm. that is sort of outward looking, is mm -hmm. sort of mm -hmm. culture building. As a very good, well-trained feminist, I don't like saying that there's anything inherent about either gender, though it is a thing that I wonder about um, I certainly think that there is a, there's something about the type of woman uh, that's attracted to and comfortable being in all male environments, uh, the type of woman that's not intimidated by that. Um, and those were the type of women that joined DiFi. Um, they were the type of, you know, women that I met and became very close with and admired very much and a lot of them were very fearless and they were very confident and they felt comfortable going into this organization that was 200 years old and absolutely digging it up from the ground because why the fuck not you know just because it's been here for 200 years doesn't mean it has to keep existing like this um, so I will I will at least say that that about women in leadership positions I think are more fearless than men in leadership positions because they have to be to get there Fearless in my mind, what I'm hearing is willing to fail. Willing to fail, willing to face criticism. They won't, but they might not like you. They won't like you. <laughs> it's not a might. They're, they're going to call you mean names, ugly names. They, they did. I had, <laughs> you won't believe how many of the men in Die Fight I told people they were scared of me, which I think is like insane. I was like this 19 year old girl, you know, and I wasn't scary at all. You know, I actually have the opportunity to see some of these people this weekend and I never had the courage to ask them what they meant, but I, I, I think I might. But I, you know, I would have liked to say like, oh God, scared of what? What in the hell did you think I was gonna do? But yes, so I think uh, fearless women in, in leadership positions have to be less afraid of failure, less afraid of criticism, and you know what I will say, uh, what I'm comfortable saying is that I think women are much more comfortable upsetting the status quo because the status quo for women was pretty terrible for like 10,000 years. <laughs>
the women I know are more open-minded. I'll, let me, I'll put it that way. What's it gonna take to get more women in the U.S. Senate? Oh my gosh, I don't know. We gotta run. Yes, the, the first step is that you need more women who wanna do it, and I think that we're on that path because we're at a point now where, I, where more women are definitely getting college degrees. I believe that more women are graduating from law school, though I could be wrong. At the very least, it's, it's reached parity. What's your class look like? Oh gosh, it's very close. I think it's slightly male majority, but within one or two percent. And people of color? Very few. Very, very it few. It is Vanderbilt. Um, it is Vanderbilt. It, it, it is actually quite on par compared to other law schools, which says something quite depressing about the profession as a whole. It says that they have work to do. Oh. Attracting. And yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that we're going to be more receptive to having women in positions of power like in the Senate. Also, when we just culturally sort of appreciate the way that women uh, communicate and the way that women approach problems. People like firebrands and... AOC. Yes, yes, they do. There aren't as many female firebrands, I don't think. But there were women who were building consensus, working behind the scenes, yes. mm -hmm. less interested in who got the credit, mm -hmm. even, dare I say it, interested in finding ways for men to save face. <laughs> I mean, that is a huge skill uh -huh. to, to make a, a complete retreat look yes. like a victory, mm -hmm. to be able to dress that up and say, now you're a winner, see? Now you're a visionary. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I think that, I hope that at some point voters are going to appreciate those kinds of skills. You know, I think about, when, when you think about like um, styles of communication and what styles of communication we associate with leaders. You know, I remember very vividly um, the debate between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton when he was sort of like stalking her all over the stage and he was yelling at her and he was, he was literally like, cowering behind her trying to intimidate her and I think about how many people um, thought that he was strong and brave and passionate and she was sort of weak and boring and I think that the ability to stay calm under pressure takes enormous strength and is so admirable and is exactly what we need in people who are in positions of power and um, but you know how to debate if that happened to you and uh, if you're standing up wherever in a mm -hmm. law school class or whatever and somebody pulls these theatrics mm -hmm. right it's just it's a distraction it's it a, is a distraction totally undermining uh what would you do i would i would do exactly what she did but she didn't get any points for it did she but then the flip side is when you thought it, when you think about the debates between donald trump and joe biden I, I also remember that first i remember the first debate between the two of them and it was kind of a similar situation still the like yelling over somebody and and it was interesting to me that biden got a great deal of credit for staying calm and collected that was viewed as strong and with her it was viewed as cold, detached, cowardly. So, I, like I've mentioned in this conversation, I'm a feminist. I'm, I'm a professional feminist. I don't know what that means. I think that means different things to different Well, people. sure, but I identify as, a, I uh, think a lot about gender dynamics. I consider myself somebody that's very comfortable with confrontation. I've studied like assault and harassment um, in a very academic way. And it's still almost impossible for me, when I'm in a situation where I feel physically intimidated by a man to say something in the moment, it's a completely different. It's a completely different situation, and I think part of it is no matter how much you study it, you're still in this incredible. Um, you, you still feel this incredible shock when it happens to you. Um, like, I mean, I, I don't want to be too cryptic and, and risk sounding very dark, but like, you know, maybe, I, like I had a situation once where I was at a bar um, and a man was like very physically aggressive t towards me. And I wasn't in, in any quote real danger because I was out in public and it, I was with my friends, but it, it was really horrible. And, um, and I didn't do anything, I didn't say anything. I was dead silent and actually a friend of mine saw what was happening and she came up and sort of like removed me from the situation and she started yelling at him and I, 
I, I think that what was sort of happening was that you study these things and you study gender dynamics and it's women versus the patriarchy and it's women versus men and it's still very hard to imagine on an individual basis that one human being would do that to another human being. And I was looking at this guy and I, I, I couldn't fully believe that this person who was like a ostensibly a normal person thought that this was an okay thing to do to me, another normal person. <laughs> I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is that you are, even if you intuitively want to react, you're second guessing that intuition. Because since that happened to me, I've made an effort to be much more headstrong when I'm in these situations. Like even when I'm in public, like if a man comes up and he's being aggressive and he's touching me or whatever, speaking to me in a way that I don't want, I have become much more conscious about saying, I need you to leave. If you don't leave, I'm going to get the bouncer, I'm going to get the bartender and all of these things. But whenever I've done that, I've gotten a phenomenal amount of backlash from even men who are strangers come up and said, you need to calm down. What are you doing with this guy? Everyone thinks they're going to react very differently. What are dads most afraid of? Mm -hmm. That their daughters are gonna be treated the exact same way as they have treated other women. That's what men are afraid of. That's what dads. Interesting. And I was like, holy shit, I have daughters now. Oh my God, mm. men really should pay better. Right. Well, it all comes back to the idea about empathy and everything hitting very differently yeah. when you can personalize it. If we get hit by lightning and the only thing that survives is this piece of audio, <laughs> um, uh, what is your legacy? What is my legacy? I'm only 26. I don't have a legacy yet. That's not true. <laughs> Absolutely not true. I mean, you have a legacy at DiFi. You have a legacy with my kids. You have a legacy with the people you've been around. Even if you never finish law school, you have a legacy. I would like to be thought of as somebody that did the kind thing even when it was uh, scary. Uh, scary in terms of being scary uh, because it wasn't popular. Um, one thing that uh, sticks out to me is in DiFi, I was part of a group of women that led the effort to get uh, everybody trained in sexual harassment prevention, and it did not go well, and I was very unpopular after that. Some people learned some things. Well, they didn't do the training, so in fact they did not. But I learned some things about the type of environment I was living and working in. Um, and I would like to be remembered for doing things like that, and, and then also things that were uh, brave in other ways. You know, when I was in college, I traveled a lot to do research and to do volunteer work and to do aid work in places that maybe weren't easy to live and I and were a little bit scary. Uh, a little bit, I don't want to say scary, but we're a little bit uncomfortable to go to. And I would like that to be part of my legacy. I'd like to be remembered as a risk taker. The risk means to be a leader costs you something. Yes, I think so. It's not expedient. No. I think it costs you things personally. It, costs you th it can cost you things professionally, emotionally. I've been very lucky uh, these past three years. I've just been in my little bubble in law school. Some leadership opportunities, but by and large, the law is a very, uh, at least when you're in school, is a very predetermined path. Even most of your classes are chosen for you. And so I've been in a bubble where I haven't had to do very many brave things. And I'd like to, s I, I hope. Disagree. Oh. <laughs> Sitting opposite that old man. That's oh, nice. well, thank you. I worry very much about getting too comfortable in my professional career because I, I have this, this degree now that would allow me to do something very cushy if I wanted to. And I'm trying to make a very conscious effort going forward uh, to not do that. Well, you don't have to make it as hard as possible. Though. <laughs> there is such no, a thing that's as just true. suffering for suffering's sake. Well, Catholics are very good at that. <laughs> there's nothing inherently noble 
about something. You're you're absolutely right. It is inevitable mm -hmm. as human beings, but there is nothing inherently noble that that's called masochism. Exactly. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right, and it's it's all about finding a balance between places in your life where you need like I don't want to say comfort, but where you need security and places where it's important to push the envelope for yourself or for other people. Yeah. You're not going to help anybody if you're dead. That's very true. Or if you're burnt out yeah. and sad. Yeah. <laughs> I acknowledge everything you've <laughs> given to DiFi and Chapel thank Hill. Thank you. Vanderbilt is lucky to have you. Thank you and very I much. Thank you. Just tell my kids that I was not a complete embarrassment. To you. I will tell them that I had a wonderful time. <laughs> okay. I, it's you know, most people don't ask such good questions. Thank you for your time, Sasha Gumbar. Thank you. Sasha Gumbar is just brilliant. That is so much fun talking to her. She is clerking, as I understand it, after graduating Vanderbilt Law School. She's clerking for a federal judge in Atlanta, I believe. So thank you, Sasha Gumbar. It was a pleasure. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. I'd like to thank everyone who has supported Man Listening from the very beginning, no matter how you supported us. It means the world. Thanks so much. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Click the subscribe button and next week you'll hear. Absolutely love the process of sharing information. And we need it. And there are people who do appreciate it. That's next week on Man Listening. Thanks.